Good morning, everyone. How's everybody today? <laughs> uh, Mary's not here today because she's, uh, she's watching online. Hopefully, I set up the TV for her, so hi, honey. Uh, hi, everybody else who's watching online. Just thank you for being faithful and staying part connected to us. Um, let, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we just want to thank you for this day, this beautiful Columbia Basin Day. Thank you for the sunshine and the warmth, and uh, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a body, to get back together and reconnect, and to to um, bring ourselves before you and, and hear from you, Lord. So I, I pray that you would speak through me t- this morning, and that everything I say would be coming from you. And uh, just thank you for this chance to be here, and pray your blessing on everyone here. God, meet, meet our needs. We come here... Some of us just have tremendous needs, and I just pray that even as we're sitting here listening to your word, that our needs will be met, whether they're emotional, physical, financial, healing. Lord, I just pray, God, that you would pour your spirit out and convict and touch and, and fill people up today in Jesus' name. There was nothing in this message that was going to make me cry, and I'm crying already, so I, know, I brought tissue. Ah, such a baby. Um, so uh, Mary and I recently went to Scotland, and uh, we had a great time over there. It's very wet in Scotland, so maybe that's why I'm thirsty. I don't know. <laughs> um, I was fascinated with all the stone buildings and all, all the building with stone. We saw a lot of ruins. We saw a lot of... Uh, Houses and buildings and everything's made of stone. So I did a, when I got home, I did a search of cutting stone. I wanted to learn how to do it. I thought that would be kind of fun to do. And instead, I ended up watching a video on how to set a cornerstone for a cabin. And it wasn't exactly what I was trying to learn. It wasn't about cutting stone. What, when you're building a cabin, you actually cut the log to fit the cornerstone. And I was thinking, there's a lesson there for us. I mean... Um, we are the church of Christ. We are the building that we are the building that God's making, and uh, we need to be formed into the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. We need to change, and we need to be molded into Him so that we can be built strong and hard. <clears throat> In Zechariah ten four, the prophet says, "From Judah will come the cornerstone." And then in Ephesians two twenty, Paul says that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. So that's who we're bu- being built on. God is busy right now building His church. He's building each one of us, and we in turn are being built into the larger body, the church, big capital C. This this is the unit we're part we're part of now. This this here, desert church, and it's being built into the larger body of the of Christ, the church. God is both continuing the work He started here back in 1978 as Ephrata Christian Center. I mean, uh, we have that name wrong. I'm not sure. Is that is that what it's called back then? Okay, yeah. Back in 1978, uh, there was a church planted here. It was called Euphrates Christian Center. And now he's doing, continuing the work he started then in 2022 as, a, as Desert Church. <clears throat> we are still a four-square church. We still believe in the four-square gospel message. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our healer. Jesus is our baptizer in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is our soon and coming King. We were placed in Ephrata to reach Ephrata, but now we believe 
as a church council and, and as um, Blake is leading us into an expanded mission. We are seeing a need for Jesus, not just in Ephrata, but in Soap Lake, in Lakeview, in Quincy, in Moses Lake, the entire Columbia Basin. We have a renewed commission to reach the lost, not just in our little town of Ephrata, but in the entire area with the love of Jesus. But what is our mission? Let's go back. Well, in Luke 4, Jesus, after being tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, he went to church in his hometown of Nazareth, and, he's, and they handed him the scroll, and he rolled to the place in Isaiah 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he stated, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is the one that came to, to proclaim good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from the dark for prisoners. Then later on in Matthew 24, Jesus spoke about the signs of the end times and what, what would have to happen before he returns. He said this in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In Matthew 28, Jesus gave us, his church, our mission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So I said, I've, I've kind of touched on a lot of things, and this is, just a, this is just the introduction. So I thought maybe we'd stop here, we'll pause a little bit, and we'll do a recap. So here's the recap. Jesus is the cornerstone. We shape ourselves to fit into him, not the other way around. We are part of a larger body. We have a mission. The mission is that the good news must go into the whole world. The Upper Columbia Basin is our world of focus. The world will hear the good news before he returns. In my own Christian walk, I've struggled with spiritual development. At times, I'm gobbling up the Bible as if it were made by Hostess or Hershey. It's delightful and sweet. I read chapters at a time, <clears throat> sometimes entire books, if they're short. <clears throat> um. It's, um, I read chapters at a time, sometimes entire books. Other times the Bible seems more like a crate of kale. And I chew up a little, struggle to finish a verse, let alone a chapter. Recently God spoke to me about how I'm reading his word. He asked me, are you learning or training? This message is in reply to God's question, learning versus training. Learning is gathering facts, gathering information. Training is learning plus application. This is what you need to know, and this is why you need to know it. I have my own theme music. That's great. In response to God's question, I kept thinking about a message that I read many, or heard many years ago at a men's retreat. 
I don't remember who the speaker was, but he took us to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And as I was preparing for this message, I reread the passages, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and I was surprised at how short it was. At the men's retreat, I took copious notes, page after page. Of course, all those notes are gone. I couldn't find them. There's much to learn from these verses, and I feel like this message today will only scratch the surface. I recommend that you all go home today and maybe this week reread the and ingest these verses from 2 Timothy. So today we're going to read chapter 2, 1 through 13, but we'll focus later on verses 1 through 7. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, he will al- we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. <clears throat> if I could sum up what my focus for this message would be, it would be verse 2. And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to the reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Paul encouraged Timothy to train people who will be able to train others. I believe that God has entrusted us with the people of this area to share the good news with them. This will mean that we will be needing training ourselves so that we can effectively teach them about Jesus and to teach them the Bible and teach them how to live out this new Christian life. Desert Church. In the upcoming years, I believe we are set to experience unprecedented growth. I'm praying for a flood, and I'll talk more about that later. How will we prepare ourselves? We will need to not just learn, but to train ourselves. We will need to learn how to live and live by, live by and for on the verses that we're reading. <laughs> Hope that made sense. <laughs> I can stumble on that one. <laughs> we will need not to just learn, but train ourselves. Okay, I think I read that. <clears throat> Paul uses three examples of how to live out this new Christ-like life in his letter. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. So first, let, we'll look at the soldier. Join with me. We're going to reread verses 3 and 4. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Soldiers train because their lives and the lives of their fellow soldiers depends on it. 
being a soldier is a life or death battleground. For many, if not most, soldiers risk they risk the the risk of bodily harm is a daily reality. Christians are also in a battleground. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Ephesians six. We have an enemy who wants to kill and destroy us. That's found in First Peter five eight. There's an aspect of the soldier and his or her training. It's not expressly mentioned, but I want to discuss it here today. I have sets of people at work who drive me a little bit crazy. Part of what makes me crazy is their common language. They can speak to each other, but I don't understand what they're saying. I found that people who have been through a similar training often have a shared vocabulary. At work, there are two groups who, that I deal with Sometimes they overlap, military, military servicemen and graduates of Perry Institute, which is a local uh, college in, in Yakima to teach electrical stuff. Anyway, they seem to have a language unto themselves. Loop sheets, does that mean anything to you? It's all about the loop sheets at work, all about the loop sheets. Loop sheets was a term that I didn't understand. When I first heard it, I got a picture in my mind of hula hoops and laundry hanging on the line. <laughs> it turns out that a loop sheet is a document that records how a device is wired up to a control system. And that's what I do. I'm in the controls. I develop control systems. Detailing every place there's a wire termination. Who knew? Not me. They all knew what a loop sheet was, how to create it, and how to use it. They're common language. I'm talking about this like it's a bad thing. But it isn't necessarily bad. It isn't bad that they can communicate with each other. The frustrating part is that I, until I learn their terms, am an outsider. I wonder how that may be applied to our training as believers. I suppose first it means that we as followers do need to have a common understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, what is church, what is the word of God and the words of God. We need that training to understand the concepts of faith, belief, repentance, sanctification, which is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit to clean us from the inside out, justification, the realization that we, through Jesus' death and resurrection, have been made right with God. There's no more work to do to be done to obtain a place in his family. We can do nothing to make him love us more. There are many terms and concepts that we need to understand and believe and follow in between ourselves, among ourselves. This is all part of our basic training as believers. We need this common knowledge and belief. <clears throat> and then we need to learn how to share all this with a world that doesn't know our language, does not know or understand our terms, does not know about God, does not know that they need him, does not know what he's done for them. The rest of the world is on the outside. We need to bring them in. We need to be gentle and patient when they don't understand our terms. We need to speak their language so that we know, so, what, so that what we know as followers of Jesus can be communicated in a way that they can understand. For example, propitiation. Does that, make, does that mean anything to you? It's not a common word in our culture, but it's a word for a foundational concept in Christianity. It comes from Hebrews 2, 17. Um, according to the website Got Questions, the word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction specifically toward God. 
Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to him. It's a vital concept to understand, but it's not a word that means anything to our culture. So we can't just say, well, we need to talk about propitiation because they won't understand it. You might as well say loop sheet. But what happens during basic training for soldiers, that is? Uh, during basic training, a soldier learns many things. But at the center of this training is to learn the core values of being a soldier. It kind of feels like, uh, as I was reading through this, it kind of felt like the Army was reading our playbook. Their core values are very similar to what I think our core values are. I think someone was reading their Bible when the Army's core value list was created. <clears throat> I modified the list. I went through and read their, uh, basically I just copied their list to fill out the middle of my sermon, but <clears throat> it's good stuff. <laughs> um, so if there's anybody here from the U.S. Army, please don't arrest me later for plagiarism because I'm giving you credit right now. <clears throat> I don't know who wrote it. Anyway, there's seven core values of the Army, and this is their, the basis of what they're trying to teach them in basic training. Loyalty. Bear true faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ and his church, meaning other believers in Jesus. Okay, so I've modified this to be basic training for Christians. So don't be surprised when I'm talking about Jesus and the church. That's not what the Army teaches. <laughs> I wish they did. Bear true faith and allegiance to Jesus Christ and his church meaning other, other believers in Jesus. Bearing true faith and allegiance is a matter of believing in, in and devoting yourself to our king. A loyal Christian is one who supports the leadership and stands up for fellow humans. By bearing the cross of Jesus, you are expressing your loyalty. And by doing your share, you show your loyalty to your Christian family, your church, and your Savior. Duty, number two, duty. Fulfill your obligations. Doing your duty means more than carrying out your assigned tasks. Duty means being able to accomplish tasks as a part of a team. The work of church is a complex combination of missions, tasks, and responsibilities, all in constant motion. Our work entails building one assignment onto another. You fulfill your obligations as a part of your unit every time you resist the temptation to take shortcuts that might undermine the integrity of the final product. Respect, number three. Treat people as they should be treated. In the Christian's code, we pledge to treat others with dignity and respect while whether or not others do the same. Respect is what allows us to appreciate the best in other people. Respect is trusting that all people have done their jobs and fulfilled their duty. And self-respect is a vital ingredient with the Christian value of respect, which results from knowing you have put forth your best effort. The church is one team, and each of us has something to contribute. Number four, that's four, <laughs> selfless service. Put the welfare of the human race, the church family, and your believers, other believers, fellow believers, before your own. Selfless service is larger than just one person. In serving your Savior, you're doing your duty loyally without thought of recognition or gain. The basic building block of selfless service is a commitment of each team member to go a little further, endure a little longer, and look a little closer to see how or she, he or she can add to the effort. Number five is honor. Live up to our Savior's values. The Christian's highest honor and award is to hear our Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. 
enter into your Father's rest. This award goes to believers who make it honor a matter of daily living. Believers who develop the habit of being honorable and solidify that habit with every value choice they make. Honor is a matter of carrying out, acting, and living the values of respect, duty, loyalty, selfless service, integrity, and personal courage in everything you do. And number six is integrity. Doing what is right, legally and morally. Integrity is a quality you develop by adhering to moral principles. It requires that you do and say nothing that deceives others. As your integrity grows, so does the trust others place in you. The more choices you make based on integrity, the more this highly prized value will give you your relationships with church family and friends and, f and finally the world around us that we're trying to reach with the love of Jesus. Personal courage. Face fear, danger, or adversity, physical or moral. Personal courage has long been associated with the followers of Jesus. With physical courage, it is a matter of enduring physical duress and at times risking personal safety. Facing moral fear or adversity may be a long, slow process of continuing forward on the right path, especially if you're taking actions is not popular with others. You can build your personal courage by daily standing up for it and acting upon the things that you know are honorable. In the life of the follower of Jesus, moral and physical courage are blended into one. Followers of Jesus are trained in basic training how important these things are in belonging to Jesus. And the biggest lesson that a follower of Jesus might take away from this is that they're always on duty. So, uh, again, I borrowed heavily from the core values of the army. So, But I believe that that fits into what Jesus would have us learn in our training. The athlete, the next in the list is from 2 Timothy, the athlete. Similarly, similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. My last athletic contest was held in Peshastin, Washington in the late spring of 1979. <laughs> A lot of stuff in my past starts with the year 19. <laughs> um, it was the district track meet. My race was a 440-yard dash. In today's terms, that means a 400-meter. It is one full lap at near full sprint speed. There were sev several heat races to establish the fastest runner, I didn't do well enough to advance in my personal run. I think I ran it in 64 seconds. I, you know, the more I think about that, it was probably more like 66 or 67 seconds. <laughs> anyway, it was slow, and I did my, I did what I thought was my best, and and I. Anyway, yeah, it doesn't matter. Just trying to be honest. <clears throat> 64 seconds sounds too good. Later that day, I was asked to join three other guys to form a mile relay team. Four guys running one lap each. I took the first leg, I was on the inside lane, and I determined to stay ahead of the pack for as long as I could. That worked for about three quarters of the lap when something happened to my legs. They went from muscle and bone to solid wood. I was surprised that I could even move, let alone continue to run. Even so, I finished my lap and su successfully passed on the baton. Our team didn't place in the top three but my coach came up to me after the race and told me that I had just turned in my fastest lap ever, 56 seconds. Woohoo! The only reason I shared this story, well, a little bit to brag, but mostly, 
is to show that I do understand what it is to be an athlete. As Paul told Timothy, you need to follow the rules in order to win. Um, in today's world, I appreciate how PE classes are done, part of it at least, the classroom portion. Physical education takes the time to instruct the students on what the rules are in the games they're playing and test them on their understanding and comprehension. I don't remember that in my high school years. I, in my experience, they handed us the equipment, pointed to the field and said, don't come back till the shower bell rings. On the athletic team, the rules were more important. They were discussed and communicated so that we all understood them. In running the 440, the rules as I remember them were one, stay in your lane. Number two, don't trip out yourself or others. Three, run as fast as you can. And then for the mile relay, they added the fourth one, don't drop your baton. As Christians, we need to know what the rules are, the rules for living this new life of running the Christian race, or maybe the human race. If you didn't know, the rules of life had changed for us believers. When we were outside grace, outside God's family, the rules were simple. It was a survival of the fittest. It was whoever dies with the most, fill in the blank, toys, sexual conquests, trophies, medals, money, degrees, cars, old Chevy trucks, etc., wins. You, th you thought I'd preach without mentioning him, didn't you? <laughs> I am enough. I did it my way. I live my own life on my own terms. The meaning of my life is what I make it. Those are the rules. Pick one or none or make up your own. It doesn't matter. At the end, you'll be dead anyway. However, as Christians, followers of Jesus, we can live by what Jesus summed up in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. As we think about that, maybe we can apply the rules I learned about racing to our Christian walk, to following Jesus. We need to, one, stay in our lanes. Keep our goal in mind. Don't wander. Don't trip myself or others, but if I do, get back up and get in back in the race. Help others who trip and fall to get back in the race. As I was studying for my message, I remembered a story I read about Eric Little, who was the Scottish uh, athlete who was featured in Chariots of Fire. In 1923, he was in a track meet where he was racing against um, all the runners from th the three countries, England, Ireland, and Scotland, and he fell. And he got 20 yards behind. And most racers in that, con in that position would just give up and walk off the field. But he got back up and ran and actually won the race. So the message there, I think, is if you're down, you're not out. All you have to do is get back up and get back in the race. It's not a matter of actually in, in the Christian walk. It's not in the Christian life. The important thing is that we finish. It's not a race, really. I mean, we just need to cross the finish line. So <clears throat> remember to run not as fast as you can, but as best as you can. The race is a, is a relay. This race is a relay. It's, not a and it's a relay marathon. One generation of believers hands off the baton to this next generation of believers. That's what this letter from the Apostle Paul to his son Timothy is all about. This was most likely the last letter Paul wrote. 
He had been tried and found guilty and was awaiting execution. This letter is a handoff. Timothy, grab on to all that I've taught you and then spread it around. Pass off the baton to others who will in turn pass it on to others. Now we here at Desert Church have received the baton. An athlete trains because only by training can you get better. An athlete competes by the rules because if he doesn't, even if he's the fastest, strongest, or most skilled, if he cheats, he loses. Followers of Jesus run the race by the rules because our master and trainer is always watching. We don't want to run the race in vain. The next one, the next character in that Paul talks about is the farmer. The hardworking farmer should be the one to receive the share of the crops. Um, farming is all about on-the-job training, as he's in my experience, which was <laughs> short but sweet. My first line of work as a teenager was working in my parents' cafe. I don't remember being trained. We just did what my parents said to do. It was on-the-job training. My second line of work running congruently with my food service career was working on a farm. Mostly, I changed hand lines and wheel lines. I vaguely remember being shown a tractor, and I've heard later that it was called a Poppin' Johnny, John Deere. <clears throat> the training went something like this. Here's the tractor, and I'll get your work done. I was supposed to hook up the trailer, start the tractor, and load the irrigation pipes on, and then haul them up to the top of the field to begin and then unload them. Problem number one was the tractor was made sometime in the 16th century. <laughs> I exaggerate. It's actually early 1900s, but <laughs> close enough. There was no starter. I don't even think there was a key switch. There was a big giant flywheel on the side you had to spin to make it start. Um, problem two was it had no brakes. After some failed attempts and near-death experiences, my boss decided that he would be the driver whenever we had to move the hand lines. Farming is hard work, mostly because it doesn't wait for tomorrow. Farming tasks are driven by forces completely beyond the control of the farmer. Hot weather, cold weather, too little rain, too much rain, rain at the wrong time, weeds, pests, disease, markets, costs for labor, costs for materials, fuel, whether it's hay for the horses or diesel for the tractors. My paternal great-grandfather, Alfred Leffelbein, came with his father from what is now Bessarabia, Russia, to begin a new life in America. He homesteaded a wheat ranch that's just outside of a little town called Roof, Washington. It's in northeast, uh, it's in northeast of Moses Lake. I don't know if you guys have ever seen or heard of it. It was called Hicksville in the <laughs> World War I. They changed the name to Hicksville, so I actually my, my heritage comes from Hicksville. <laughs> They changed it back to roof after the war. Um, you Dryland wheat farming has got to be one of the best vocations you want you can be involved in to learn how to live by faith. You plant the wheat in the fall, believing God will water it, then cover it with a blanket of snow so it doesn't freeze, and water again in the spring, but not too much water, and have warm weather, not too hot, and no freak freezes. The farmer works hard because his family's livelihood depends on it. A farmer works hard because if he doesn't work, he and his family won't eat. Some jobs we can't slough off, and we can slough off, and there seems to be no consequence. In farming, there's about a nine-month cycle between sloughing off and paying for it. Planting and harvest. Everything shows up in the harvest. As followers of Jesus, it's also the harvest where, we, where our hard work 
or lack of hard work shows up. With God, there are two types of harvests, or two times the harvest comes in. The first is our personal harvest, the morning or evening or the middle of the night, when God says, it's time, you're done, come home now. In the introduction of C.S. Lewis's book on the Psalms, he said that the parable of the sheep and the goats was all about the sin of omission, and I'd never put it, I had never heard it put that way. Um, if you want to, we can turn to Matthew 25. We'll read 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothing and clothe you? And clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Sloughing off our duties now affects the harvest later. Our sins of omission show up at the harvest. So now let's talk about Ephrata. <clears throat> Water in the desert. I know I said previously that our mission is to the Upper Columbia Basin, not just Ephrata, but our church is physically loaded, located here in Ephrata. Do you know what the history of Ephrata is? How it became to be a town of any significance? Surprisingly enough, it was water. Water in the desert. While the railroad folks were plotting out where the railroad would go, they needed to keep in mind that steam engines need to have their water replenished every so often. Simply put, making steam requires two things, fire and water. Ephrata, while in the middle of a desert with no streams or lakes, had a plentiful supply of water through an artesian spring called Beasley Springs. <clears throat> from uh, thumbnail history from historylink.org, with an excellent spring one-fourth of a mile from the railroad station, the town is abundantly supplied with clear, cold water, said a 1904 description of Ephrata in an illustrated history of Big Bend Country. Water has always been the reason for 
great it to exist as a town, even today, maybe especially today. Here's another quote from History Link. Just as water drew the first people to Hantu Hippum and Tahitan, which were the Native American words for Ephrata, which means fertile and abundant with water, water remains the key element of today's thriving modern Ephrata. Desert Church, here we are in Ephrata. Ephrata, Washington, in the 21st century. Has the need for water ever diminished? Certainly not in a physical sense, but how about in the spiritual sense? Do people still need to drink from water, drink water from the well that Jesus presented to the woman at the well in Samaria? The culture we live in offers all the water we can drink, but it's made from sewage and seawater. If it doesn't poison you outright, it will dehydrate you and kill you anyway. What we do here at Desert Church, what do we have here at Desert Church to offer? We have living water. We have the artesian spring of life-giving water. Not only does it satisfy our thirst, but it also cleanses us at the same time. We have God's spirit. We have God's word of life. We have a father God who gave up his only son. We have a savior who laid down his life for us, his friends. Historically, in Ephrata, there was a flood in 1916 and again in 1948. Um, just yesterday, I was got confused about what I was reading because originally I thought that it was um, there was lots of snow, and I think that's the way it was in 1916. There was a big snow, heavy snow, and then there was a a wind from out of the south that was warm and it f- melted the snow and, and flooded. Then in 1948, there was a huge thunderstorm that flooded, and there was an eight foot wall of water that ran down that that canyon that right back behind. Uh, Pastor Blake's house. An eight-foot wall of water. Can you imagine that? Town of Ephrata flooded. There's no rivers here. How do you flood in places no rivers? Well, I believe there's another flood coming. Only it will be a spiritual flood of people. Souls will be flooding in when God's Spirit warms their frozen hearts. We can be preparing ourselves. We can be training um, coming up very soon, this fall, I think this is the first class, and then later on in the year, there's going to be another one of Rooted. It's a 10-week class. It is basic training for Christians. I encourage us all to sign up and get trained up. We need to, we need to learn our language, our common language as Christians, what we believe in. We need to learn that. We need to learn our message. We need to learn our mission and then we need to learn how to share and care for a lost world. That's it. That's my message. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for, for time to be together. Thank you for this church, Lord. We have a mission. God, show us our mission. Show us. Put it in, our, in front of us so that we are always mindful, no matter where we're at or who we're with, that we have a mission to share Jesus with a lost and dying world. We just thank you, Lord, for the chance to participate in this. In Jesus' name.